Welcome to the Rise, Teach, Learn podcast. I am Dr. Chiara Ferrari, Director of Faculty Development at Chico State, and we are happy to make this resource available to our campus community and beyond. The podcast is hosted by Dr. Jamie Lynn Gunderson, and she will engage in timely conversations with faculty, staff, and students, and give you a taste of the Chico experience. Subscribe to our podcast and explore the many resources available on our website. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to Rise, Teach, Learn. I'm your host, Jamie Gunderson. In this episode, we are going to explore the idea of artificial intelligence, or AI, in academia. And I'd like to start by welcoming this episode's guests, Dr. Kim Jackson and Dr. Zach Justice. And if you don't mind, Kim and Zach, I'm going to have you say a little hello to the audience and tell them about who you are so that they can get to know your voice. So take it away, Kim. Hello, everyone. I'm uh, Kim Jackson. I'm a professor in the English department um, who studies digital literacies and the teaching of science writing. Um, And I'm now in a new role on campus as the coordinator of undergraduate research, which I'm enjoying uh, figuring out as we go. Hi, I'm Zach Justice. I'm a professor of communication studies. I regularly teach writing along with public speaking. So some different interactions with how students express themselves. I have an abiding long-term interest in learning technologies and a certain in a variety of ways on campus. So fun fact, prior to my time at Chico State, I worked in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I was an assistive technologist. So in my role, I work directly with um, adapting and modifying technology to support the needs of a variety of learners. And so that being part of my experience, I tend to have like a pro accessibility lens when it comes to technology. Like I'm normally like super geeked about any possibility that technology can provide. But when I was sitting down with Kiara and we were first talking about chat GPT, I kind of was a little reserved on that. At first I was like, oh wow, imagine the possibilities, but then, oh wow, imagine the possibilities. And so we wanted to devote an episode to ChatGPT, and we wanted to have Kim and Zach on here to talk a little bit about some of the predictions we have, the opinions we have, um, the implications for our teaching. So thanks, Jamie. ChatGPT is, as you said, a lot of things. The clunky uh, name for it, and it's a good reason why we have the acronym, is Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. It just rolls off the tongue. So. ChatGPT is a language generation tool. Some of the initial articles and podcasts about ChatGPT were a little bit confusing because people confused it with what's called general AI, which is something that does not exist yet, which is an actual thinking machine. This has some attributes that make it seem like it is thinking but it's really because it is culling language from all over the internet and using a predictive algorithm to spit out sentences and sequences that it has found in other parts of the internet. So it is not thinking, but it is generating language that is that, that already exists, that's built on existing knowledge, and it's putting it together in really interesting ways, not ways that are always accurate, but in really interesting ways. And one of the things that it seems really good at is 
providing quick written summaries of things that we already know a lot about. Specialized knowledge is not in its wheelhouse right now, but for instance, in my class, which is a class in freedom of speech, so there is a lot written about it. There's a lot published about it in legal texts and academic texts on just random websites. It is really good at answering quick rights, which are the primary way that I would assess understanding and make sure that students had done reading for that week. And so I am trying to lean into that this semester rather than fight that. Maybe a huge mistake. I really don't know. We, we are all making this up as we go. But for right now, I'm trying to teach students how to use it, encourage its usage, and in some cases, mandate its usage specifically in response to short written prompts. You know, Zach, I think what you've touched on there, even by out outlining what it is, is the fear is from the faculty I've talked with, that the thing you just named, which is this is gonna be really good at quick responses to known ideas. Um, and so, you know, I think for those of us who teach writing or think about the teaching of writing or think about communication, um, to me, why I don't get as nervous perhaps about it is because it still goes back to assignment design, um, right? It still goes back to how you think about your assignment design. So for example, if you use writing to see whether students know what you know, chat GPT is gonna be really good at doing that for them. If you use writing to vet, to, to vet ideas, to, uh, for them to push ideas forward, for students to ask questions, for students to, then, then it's not gonna do as good of a job and they'll wanna do you know, the writing themselves. I do think it'd be fascinating, and I'll be doing this with my capstone class in English ed who want to be future high school teachers because it would be a disservice to not be working with this with them going into K-12. Um, we're actually going to design writing assignments off of the book in common and put and and put it in chat GPT and see what it can do with a draft. And then we're going to crowdsource that draft. We're going to revise that draft. We're going to annotate that draft and see where its limitations are. And in the service of thinking about assignment design, how can you design assignments? I, to me, this is just another iteration of the five paragraph essay that I don't want students to do anyway, you know. <laughs> So much of this gets back to really foundational questions about why are we assigning writing and what are we preparing students to do in our classes? And part of the reason why this has been uncomfortable for some faculty is because we've gotten really comfortable with the processes that we're in. And this has caused us to go back and ask ourselves some foundational questions that we don't always have great answers to in terms of why we assign writing, what it is that we're preparing students to do. So like in the example that Kim used where you're preparing students to go into teacher education. And so this is gonna be a part of that world. So we had better teach people how to do it. And I have, that, I have a similar perspective with my students. They are graduating seniors. They are going into sales and recruiting and real estate and nonprofit management. All of those things are going to involve them writing copy and summarizing ideas and putting stuff together for a website. And the, the truth of this is, this is being used in all those industries already. 
We're not talking about the future. We're talking about right now. I think there was an article from NPR. I'm sure Jamie can link it in the show notes that 40% of people engaged in knowledge work have experimented with this for work-related tasks. And so if we are fighting this or pretending it doesn't exist, we are systematically disadvantaging our students from entering the workforce. Now, that's not the only reason why we're in higher ed, right? We're not an assembly line to produce workers. I also want to produce thinkers and informed voters and people that change the world and think about the world differently and have a grounded understanding of some key concepts. But this will be a part of all of those things as well. So the if we can ask ourselves honestly some of those foundational questions, why are we teaching writing? What are we preparing students to do? This is currently a part of all of those answers. And in the future, it will probably only be more so. Yeah. I I have to call attention to two things you said there, Zach. Um, Number one, you mentioned that this technology is being used in other disciplines and it so is. So I'll give an example. When Kiara and I sat down and started talking about ChatGPT and we decided to do an episode on this topic, I started to do research. And one of the clips that I saw, the announcer actually used ChatGPT to write their transition. And they literally, it was very basic, like do a a TV transition from this and and make sure to reference this and boom. And she read it and it was, it was beautiful. It it matched perfectly and it was very conversational in nature. So what you say is absolutely true. It's being used. The funny thing is I thought, what a cool idea for my podcast intro. And I was going to have chat GPT do that for me, but it's so popular right now that when I went to log in and this has never happened to me in all my years of working with technology, I had to sign up with my email to be notified when there's server space for me to get in. So that tells me it's super popular. It is being used in different disciplines. But this other idea, Zach, that you brought up reminds me of this, and it's a thing that we use in K-12 education, this idea of digital citizenship and how we teach our learners to use technology in a meaningful, responsible way. And I wonder if maybe there are some implications for thinking about digital citizenship with these newer types of technology. What's okay, what's not okay. As you were talking, I was like, oh, wow, this is making that connection to, this is another form of digital citizenship that we are going to have to teach. You know, um, Jamie, you're making, you're reminding me, one thing I might recommend that people listen to if they want to just a nuanced look would be the podcast from the Ezra Klein show where um, Gary Marcus was, who's a has thought about AI for his career. Um, And one of the things that I was persuaded by that that scares me more than the classroom space would be the political implications of a a chat GPT that takes the worker, the, the writer off the table. It's not cost anymore to put out whatever non factual thing you'd like to put out in the world at scale, at scale, you know, you could. So I think the political implications and us understanding who's doing the writing, what counts as writing, you know, whose writing counts are the big questions that Zach was also pointing to as well. And that makes me more nervous. And I would like our students to have some understanding of this than its use in the classroom. Like, I think this has political implications that are terrifying, that are different than how we're using it in this space for an essay in our class. 
I hadn't had that perspective. I hadn't had that thought yet. I've been so focused on what does this mean for education, specifically higher education. Right. And I, I never even transitioned outside of that focus to think about, oh gosh, what does this mean for our yeah. political environment? So that's a whole other yeah. can of words. So ChatGPT has a lot of limitations, and some of those are built in by design and build on some of the things that that Kim was just sharing. So it there are there are some clever workarounds, but um, it won't engage at least overtly in discrimination or stereotypes or conspiracy theories and. I study disinformation. It's a big part of my research agenda. And so I try to get it to do some of those things. I asked it about hollow earth and lizard people, and it wouldn't say anything about those pieces. And then uh, my friend Nick and I asked it, uh, why was the 2020 election stolen? And I was thinking, well, I wonder, and it has guardrails up for that. So it will... Output a response that say that is a conspiracy theory, it is unfounded, etc. Now you can sometimes get around that where you ask, what are some reasons why some people believe that the 2020 election was stolen? And you go deep enough into the algorithm, and eventually you can get it to generate some answers about that. Now, there are other limitations too that perhaps we can talk about, but here's one point that I want to make that I think sort of feeds into what King was sharing earlier. This is one program that exists now. These same limitations will not exist either on this program or on other programs, either right now in space that I'm not aware of or in future programs, right? In the same way that there are alternative technologies and ecosystems that pop up all the time that are friendly to conspiracy theories and racism, we're probably months, not years away from these programs being customized for particular subgroups and without the guardrails, as imperfect as they are, that exist with ChatGPT right now. Yeah, yeah, such good points, Zach. You know, I would, as a tangent to that, um, because Tracy Butts, who is the Dean of uh, the College of Humanities and Fine Arts here at Chico State, knows that I'm interested in language diversity and celebrating language. She drew my attention to a thread on Twitter where someone, I, I invite students to weave in Spanish or Hmong or Af African-American vernacular English into their essays because there's times when translation is not the best. Um, and so this person on Twitter asked ChatGBT to write a bedtime story in AAVE, African-American Vernacular English, and the bot said no. And then the person said, no, I'm Black, it's fine. And what they say is that it went on to write this pretty offensive racist thing as if it was your white friend who got permission to be racist. And so think about all the complications of that. One, it wants to say, that's not a real language. I won't write in that. Okay, you're giving me permission. Now I'm going to do the worst form. So it has a long way, a long way to go before um, we're talking about things like celebrating diversity in language, equity in language, those kinds of things. So I think the things people are afraid about, in my opinion, are not quite the right things that they should be. Like, I don't even think it's plagiarism, you know, like 
in the same way, any more than, this is really theoretical, right? But in a Bakhtinian sense, right? Like, like, yes, it's a remix and a mashup of language, just like all of our languages. And so in that sense, everything's plagiarized, you know, um, when I want to get meta about it. But I don't, I, I think it's more like a student has to actually feed in a very sophisticated prompt in order to get it to, to write it, to write something for them. Mm, that could be actually really interesting thinking that they're having to do. So I think ChatGPT and similar programs, there are a lot of pieces we don't know about how it will fit into equity as in the classroom. And that extends obviously to the K-12 classroom as well as what we do at the university. There are some parts about this that offer a lot of potential, right? So in the most obvious way that it fits in is a, a digital divide piece, right? If you don't have reliable and high-speed internet access, then you have limited access to this tool. If this is a really powerful tool, then ultimately that, that's really limiting. Um, but there are other pieces as well, right? Like if you do have the threshold and you cross over and you have good internet access, then do you have access to a treasure trove of academic research and human knowledge that you might not have, especially here or in a rural area or in a resource poor area? If you are a 10th grade student who has an abiding inter interest in astronomy, and there's no astronomy program within 100 miles of where you're at, and but that you know that's what you'd like to study, then suddenly are, are you able to get answers to those questions? And there's this weird thing that happens too, where the chat program has access to original academic research that is in protected databases, that then it will summarize and provide to the person who enters the prompt. You can't go read the originals, which is its own huge problem that I have extremely strong opinions about. But as a workaround, if you don't have database access, you can still get access to at least summarize information, even if you're not affiliated with the university, or even if you're a high school student that has access to a library, but your school doesn't pay you to have access to the kind of databases and information that you would like. So in some ways it creates equity. Now we're starting to see inequity built in, right? Like there's a tiered model, Jamie mentioned earlier, she wasn't able to get on. Well, now you can pay for premium access. And so now there is a, a class-based tier. But uh, I think that this is going to be a real disruptor to how we have traditionally thought about equity in the classroom. The most recent MacArthur report that came out on digital divide was not around people having access to things like smartphones or, or computers, but what you get to do with it. The kinds of creative work you get to do with those devices is where now our divide is, right? And so, and internet has a big part of that, right? Obviously rural areas like even like ours, um, and so, Zach, just, just that, that's the thing that makes me nervous, that we shouldn't be the gatekeepers for new technologies. We should be the place where there's a curiosity around it and we're trying it out and sorting it out and asking the hard questions about it as opposed to, you know, putting it aside. Jamie, I thought I might offer 
one practical example of assignment design. Because I teach writing, I get asked a lot about assignment design. And I have worked for many years with a wonderful colleague, Leslie Atkins, who was at Chico and is now at Boise State, to think about the teaching of writing in science. And we have a paper we end with in this scientific inquiry class where we study light, color, and the eye. And the class ends with a paper that sounds like it would be very easy to plagiarize, which is, how does the eye work? How's the eye work? You can Google that. <laughs> like, you'll get all kinds of... And so Leslie and I put that prompt into chat GPT. How does the eye work? And we got what you'd expect, a very Wikipedia entry looking, you know, the eye, blah, 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 and the retina, and here's what the lens does. But then we started feeding it all the things that our class does around that. Um, and the one thing it could play with was we do this pinhole theater, um, camera obscura, where you put a box on your head and you can see an image across from you. It's just Google pinhole theater. Yeah. Um, and, and it could play with that. Like it could play with that prompt as a way to incorporate it into how the eye works. But there is not a student who could turn in that final paper for our class where we wouldn't recognize that that is not the thing we do. You know, they they're drawing on, well, my group worked with lenses and my group worked with pigment and my group worked with understanding the rainbow as a way to understand the eye. So all the work of the course is what shows up in that how the eye works paper. You couldn't write it without being in our class. And so I think I'd think about that, like how is your course in the service of the writing and specific to, can anyone say this? Like this is specific to the ideas you've all been vetting as a community in your class. Um, and so we weren't as worried, but we thought it was fun to play with and we probably have students play with that, putting that prompt into what is, and, and it could be really fun to have students annotate that. Like what does chat GPT get wrong in your field? What Where's the inaccuracies? Because pointing out, wrong, I, Leslie has said this a lot, pointing out wrong ideas is actually harder than knowing when something's right. Like you really understand a topic when you can say that something, this is wrong, right? So, so there might be ways to think about, you know, assignment design that can um, alleviate fears of plagiarism. And I know Zach's doing some really cool work with his students on that. I really like how you uh, talk about assignment design, but you kind of brought it back to that idea of like digital citizenship. Like, this idea that like, yeah, it is more difficult to point out the wrong answers. And we should be teaching our students to discern between right and wrong answers or right and wrong information or not right and wrong, but um, yeah, you know, like what is good information versus yeah. bad. And so that that's interesting. And and then to tie it back to that idea of equity, Zach, um, I'm thinking, so my background is special education and I've worked a lot uh, with technology that, that takes the readability of a document and makes it more digestible for somebody who struggles in that area. And I'm, as we're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about how this might have the potential, Kim, with your designing of your lessons to give students that kind of summary that they need for comprehension, but then to push them forward to develop something. So I think it comes back to the two things that we've kind of like highlighted, this idea of digital citizenship, teaching our students how to use technology responsibly. And then also this idea of designing your assignments to make sure that there isn't space for somebody to just put a prompt in and, and just turn in a paper. Yeah. yeah. So I'll offer one assignment piece for this that I, I believe also supports what, what Ken has shared earlier. So 
Later in the semester for one of the quick rights, it is going to be required that students use the, the program. So they are going to enter the prompt and they are going to submit the prompt, the, the response from chat GPT. And then they're going to submit a response that is their revisions because I need the students to know that it is up to them to assess the factual accuracy, to change language that's awkward. Sometimes there are typos that show up. What ChatGPT is really good at is style. I had to describe an academic theory and then I said, now do it with more academic jargon. And it does that. And I said, now write it for a fifth grade. And it does that. Stylistically, it's really good. So if you give it first glance and, you, and you're not an area expert, it sounds right. But it's up then to the person who's going to attach their name to it, either out in the world or in the in the space of our classrooms, to assess the accuracy of that piece. And I have one quick anecdote for you that I'm not sure will make it into the final cut, but I want to share it anyway. My mother and father live in Yuba City, and my mom has a deep interest in local Chinese history especially the history of the Chinese in Yuba City. There's a lot of research and a lot of work done about the history of the Chinese in Marysville, um, specifically because of gold mining. There's much less done in Yuba City. And so she's kind of made that her interest. She's made contributions to the local museum about that and helped design exhibits and has lots of connections in the community. So I asked the, the, the program, write a 500-word history of Chinese immigrants in, in Yuba City. To me, it sounded totally reasonable, but I sent it to her. And what it did was it conflated Yuba City and Marysville together because where it's harvesting language, those things are most often together. I would have never known that, but she knows that because she has such a deep well of knowledge to draw on. And so, especially in these specialized areas, factual inaccuracies abound. Um, so it's a, it is, it places a different kind of responsibility on the, whether we're going to call it the author or the producer or the editor. I, I think we'll have to reshape all that language in the coming years. But in our cases of the student that we're asking to use this, you know, they, they are in a different role than they were before. And in some ways, it's a harder role because when they read the stuff, it sounds like their textbooks sound because that's the those are the inspiration for the language that it's drawing from. Yeah. Zach, that's such a good example. I think it should be. <laughs> and I also think, I mean, I don't, I feel like just an extension of what we should be do, should be doing all along, which is vetting any source, any source. We should see if other people say that too. I mean, anytime we're having students look at any kind of news media right now, I would think that we're having them go to multiple sources, we hope, um, looking to, you know, not maybe not even truth with a capital T, but at least a lowercase t. <laughs> 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 but this is just a next next level of another, maybe this, maybe this is pushing us towards like, no, really, we need to like vet the information that we're getting for real. Yeah. I've had lots of conversations with lots of faculty about this program and how it's going to change things. And I've sent 
somewhat alarmist emails to people about, no, you really need to pay attention. This is, this is quite important. The disposition immediately changes if they create an account and use it. And I think if you want to understand the power and potential and disruption that this and similar programs are going to pose, the strongest advice that I can give is uh, stop reading, maybe stop listening and go create an account and try it out. Yeah. And it is, it, there's no teacher like the experience of, of doing that and seeing the limitations and, and the possibilities. But I just know firsthand that the conversation changes with people once they have gone in and gotten their hands on the program themselves. So I can't, even if, even if you think that this is our doom and the end of higher education, okay, go, go try it out. If you think this sounds like the best thing ever, okay, go, go try it out. I like that advice, Zach. Um, and as a prompt for what to do for when you go to try it out, it is really fun to put in something you already use in your class, but you know, um, try writing letters of recommendation. <laughs> Nick made that exact point. He was like, the conversation about this is going to shift radically once we realize we can use this to draft letters. Letter, letters of rec, some boilerplate language, a little specifics to the student, or put in a lesson plan. Ask it to write you a lesson plan for something in your class. It's it's fascinating. They're not great lesson plans. You'd give them a C, but they're they'd be a thing to start from. Like you could revise. Make your work easier. Try it out by making your work easier. The whole adage of work smarter, not harder. Yeah, harder. Yeah. yeah right. We are going to have a link for the chat GPT webpage on our FDEV podcast webpage, along with a link to a website. And uh, Zach, do you want to kind of share what that website is? Yeah, it, the website has been developed and is curated by my friend and colleague, Nick Janos. And we're placing our own writing there, along with some key pieces that we're finding about chat GPT and academia. I'm sure there's overlap also with some of the resources that Kim has so carefully curated from some of her colleagues. Yes, and we will be providing a link to Kim's resources as well, which is a total treasure box of everything you wanted to know about ChatGPT. In addition, because this is such a popular topic on our campus, the Office of Faculty Development will be hosting a ChatGPT forum. It's not scheduled yet. We are going to put that on the calendar for March, so keep a lookout for that. All right, and there you have it, folks. Today we explored AI in academia, specifically ChatGPT. I'd like to thank Drs. Jackson and Justice for their contribution to this episode. And I'd like to remind everybody, please don't forget that you can access all previous episodes of Rise Teach Learn, as well as the resources associated with this and other episodes of our podcast on our FDEV podcast webpage. A big thank you to you for listening. And until next time, we got this, Wildcats. We would like to thank the Machupta on whose traditional lands this recording is taking place. Without their support and continued positive presence in our community, we would be unable to forward the cultural and educational work that is at the heart of this recording.